Good afternoon. It's Friday the 12th of January 2024, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me by video link today, we have uh, Debbie Evans uh, and uh, uh, Ben. <laughs> Sorry, Ben. We'll get, we'll get to it in a second. My head is completely gone. Now, uh, we're going to start off with Yemen. Uh, and uh, of course, uh, this all began on Wednesday uh, because uh, Barbara Woodward was in the uh, United Nations uh, saying this, the United Kingdom condemns in the strongest terms the illegal and unjustified attacks in the Red Sea by the Houthi militants. Uh, she said, uh, if necessary, and as previously stated by the UK Defence Secretary, we will not hesitate to take further action to deter threats to the freedom of navigation to the Red Sea. So there was this threat has been going on for a few days now. Uh, and then uh, yesterday, uh, Rishi Sunak decided that he would speak to... Uh, the Egyptian president, al-Sisi, uh, and uh, he discussed the Red Sea and the situation there. He clearly uh, gave him a heads up as to what was coming next, uh, because what came next, uh, we had uh, this, uh, the uh, launch of four uh, RAF Typhoon fighters, uh, supported by a Voyager air refueling tanker, uh, and they decided to drop bombs on various targets that they had decided uh, were responsible for launching drones in the Red Sea. Uh, now, the, from what I'm hearing from Yemen, uh, nobody is terribly excited or impressed about this because although uh, they're saying in the press release that uh, uh, a number of buildings involved in drone operations were targeted uh, by our aircraft, uh, and on the news reports this morning, they were saying that various targets were hit, uh, nobody's saying anything was destroyed. And certainly uh, the news from Yemen, from people that we have uh, been hearing from in Yemen, is uh, that uh, nothing terribly serious was the result. So nobody's taking this uh, very seriously over there. Over there, So uh, Rishi Sunak then uh, said that the Ar Royal Air Force has carried out targeted strikes against military facilities used by Houthi rebels in Yemen, despite the repeated warnings from the international community. The Houthis have continued to carry out attacks in the Red Sea, including against UK and US warships this week. Uh, this cannot stand. The United Kingdom will always stand up for freedom of navigation and the free flow of trade. We've therefore taken limited, necessary and proportionate action in self-defense alongside the United States with non-operational support from the Netherlands, Canada and Bahrain against targets tied to these attacks uh, to degrade uh, Houthi military capabilities and protect global shipping. And as I say, uh, no sign of any degradation at this point. Uh, the Royal Navy continues to patrol the Red Sea as part of the multinational Operation Prosperity Guardian to deter further Houthi aggression. Now, um, the uh, various shipping companies have been commenting on this this morning, and so far, uh, nothing uh, seems to have changed as far as they're concerned. They're saying, absolutely, uh, there'll be no ships going through the Red Sea for the meantime because this looks like escalation and uh, has absolutely the risk of escalation. Uh, Saudi Arabia saying, uh, really, this needs to stop. Don't do any more of this because they're concerned that they're going to get drawn back into uh, uh, an escalation with Yemen and so on. Now, in the meantime, that was yesterday. Uh, today, then, uh, Rishi has decided to head off to Ukraine. And here he is using, well, not public transport, as you can see, he's on the train uh, heading to Ukraine because uh, he and Zelensky are going to sign what they're describing as a uh, historic UK-Ukraine agreement on security co cooperation. Uh, and this is going to be another uh, two and a half billion 
uh, pounds or so in total in military aid to Ukraine in 2024-2025, an increase of 200 million pounds on the previous two years, they say. Uh, this uh, is going to also include uh, giving them drone, drones. It's going to be the largest delivery of drones to Ukraine from any nation uh, and uh, and so on. So uh, this is what they're talking about, more and more money being spent. Uh, he, he's also announcing a further £18 million in aid for Ukraine on top of the military support, uh, building on uh, £340 million of uh, aid so far. So that's where we are uh, in Yemen and Ukraine. Uh, of course, the uh, situation at the uh, International Court of Justice uh, is continuing, and uh, no doubt Vanessa will be talking about that uh, next week. Uh, but the uh, efforts by from the Israeli side to justify what they're doing um, seem to be uh, not the most inspired. But anyway, we'll talk about that a little bit more uh, next week. So that's, uh, that's the Middle East. Now, let's uh, come back to Europe and uh, to Davos. Ben. Uh, ben, I do remember your name, actually, by the way, <laughs> but go ahead. Ben Rubin. Yes. His eye. Anyway, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. That's right. As Mike just said, the 54th meeting of the World Economic Forum convenes next week in Davos. This year, the agenda is focused on one thing and one thing alone. It is rebuilding trust. But why, I hear you ask, should trust need to be rebuilt? Let's hear from Penny Mordaunt. Since the turn of the century, we've had our leaders rigging interest rates, laundering drug money, presided over an offshore banking system bigger than anyone thought possible, forced good companies into closure, and destroyed pension funds as they themselves grew wealthier. Collectively, they oversaw an unprecedented destruction of wealth and the collapse of the financial system. They watched as life savings placed into investment funds set up by leaders of previously unpeachable integrity turned out to be Ponzi schemes. They sold off gold reserves to compensate for these exercises in corporate greed while never once convicting a banker. Our spiritual leaders covered up sex abuse in the church. Our charity leaders sexually abused the vulnerable. Our child welfare leaders permitted child abuse. Our police leaders have allowed predators to wear a uniform. Leaders of the automotive industry lied about emissions, were imprisoned, fled the country while out on bail, and remain fugitives. Leaders of our water utilities polluted rivers and then covered it up. Global entertainment leaders have faced multiple allegations of sexual harassment and abuse. Britain's leading broadcaster falsely accused political figures of being child abusers whilst allowing actual abusers to commit crimes on their premises. Meanwhile, sporting leaders have been caught cheating and doping, human rights lawyers have been struck off for misconduct and dishonesty, and the offshore tax operation, thought to be a fraction of the UK economy, turned out to be a multiple of it. Ah, okay, quite a lot then to rebuild trust around. Now, what's that going to do with the World Economic Forum? Well, unfortunately, our leaders, as Mordant has just outlined, people who have committed all of those crimes, essentially, uh, and many of them are connected to the World Economic Forum. This is well known, uh, not least through their Young Global Leaders program, 
uh, you can go and look at all of the uh, graduates from the Young Global Leaders Program. If you go to the Malone Institute website and download this spreadsheet, you can see here, this is just one snapshot. There's about five and a half thousand names on here, not all from the UK, uh, all around the world. Uh, but you can see two or three generations of senior British politicians. Uh, Boris Johnson, David Cameron, Gordon Brown, who's flogged off the gold, Tony Blair and his mate William Hague, Charles Kennedy, David Lammy, Ed Balls, Yvette Cooper, Chukka Umana, remember him? He was going to be the British Obama, apparently, for about five minutes. Um, they were all in charge while all of those things happened. And the World Economic Forum continues to churn out young global leaders. So McKinsey asked them, uh, some of them, the more recent ones and the lesser known ones, what to expect from Davos 2024. And they were all predictably on message. AI is the big theme, but they also touched on climate action and adaptation, intersectionality, reasserting international law and order. Actually, one of them spoke about the new world order, actually used those words, uh, the importance of protecting and reinforcing democracy. Uh, and my particular favourite, the idea of um, what does DEI mean when we could, when we have access to genetic engineering? That is a big question. Um, McKinsey uh, are one of the strategic partners of the World Economic Forum. They're the, the big global consulting firm. They're front and centre with a lot of the messaging. They've been working directly with Klaus Schwab to set out the strategic context for next week's event. They've issued two reports in the past week. The first is this one, Global Risks Report for 2024. This is a survey of 1,500 global experts, mainly sourced from the World Economic Forum community. It includes input from a bunch of insurers, big insurance companies, and they're looking over the one, two, and 10-year horizons at different geopolitical risks. They basically describe the world as a series of crises. We have a, a polycrisis across pretty much every era area of society. The most immediate one in this election year is misinformation and disinformation. The idea that as polarization grows and technological risks remain unchecked, truth will come under pressure. In the long term, the 10-year view, it's all about the environment, the idea that the environment is going to hit a point of no return. We've heard a lot about that over the past month with COP and all of the other activity around that. Uh, and uh, two other big risks around um, the economic strains on low and middle income people and countries, not the wealthy, interestingly, they don't talk about them. And also the ideological and ge geoeconomic divides that will disrupt the future of governance if the WEF doesn't get its way. Uh, the second report, the, uh, as I said, there were two big strategic reports issued this week. The second one is this, the Global Cooperation Barometer. So obviously we have all these risks. How are we going to manage and mitigate them? Well, we need to cooperate. We need to collaborate. And that's global governance and global business. That is the dictionary definition of fascism, the integration of the markets and the state. There are five big themes here. So trade and capital, innovation and technology, climate and natural capital, health and wellness, peace and security. This draws inspiration from the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals and the efforts of lots of other global institutions. It opens with this wonderful chart. So you apparently can reduce global collaboration down to this blue line. So global collaboration at the moment is just under one. 
This is just classic management consulting. This is, this is um, uh, abstraction to the point of absurdity. Right, so we can drill down a little bit and get a bit more detail across each of those five themes. And we can see that all of the lines are going up in the right direction as they're supposed to, I suppose. Apart from peace and security, which has been going down since, 20 and 20, uh, since 2020, that yellow line is obviously the war in Ukraine, the war in Gaza, and now in Yemen and whatever comes next, right? So this is the view from the control tower. All of that geopolitical mess, they have reduced down to a few colorful lines on a chart, and that's what they're using to guide a lot of their conversation. Uh, over to you, Debbie. Well, just before we move on to Debbie, oh. uh, I just want to raise this with you, uh, Ben, because obviously number one on the two-year risk uh, chart there was, was misinformation and disinformation. We're going to be talking about that uh, in a couple of minutes. Uh, with uh, just after the, the, the break, but uh, generative AI was what they were talking about. And it's fascinating to me how themes uh, run across different agencies and different institutions. So generative AI and misinformation and disinformation uh, are a key theme of Davos this year, or at least the, or the Global Risk Report anyway. And that is something that we're seeing in the news media as well. That, that must be just a coincidence. Uh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, I don't want to sound like a conspiracy theorist. So, yeah, I, I think it's probably a coincidence. Yes, indeed. Okay, okay. So, so Debbie, let's uh, let's move on to you then, because you've got more on this. And uh, well, the first thing is to remind ourselves about what we may or may not own. Yes, good afternoon, everybody. Um, yeah, I do. I want to remind people, I'm sure most people will remember when the World Economic Forum put out the message of you'll own nothing and be happy. Um, but I just want to, to say to people, that was you will own nothing. It didn't say we will own nothing, as, a, as in uh, the World Economic Forum and uh, those that are in the global arena at the moment. It says you will own nothing. So I want to go back to Davos, which is taking place next week, and we'll just flash up the screen that Ben showed as well, because what that shows is that they are getting literally thousands of people together. This is the mass. This is a massive networking uh, marketi marketing marketing uh, organization. Basically, they've got a hundred governments, thousands of foreign partners, civil society expert, youths, media, social entrepreneurs. So when I went to their website, and you can go to their website and see all their flags hanging out, ready for Davos, and they invite you to find out who's coming and what to expect. So let's see who's coming and what to expect. And now I'm not going to read out all of those names because literally this is this is a meeting of many, many people. So we've got Li Kuang, Premier of the Republic of China. We've got Emmanuel Macron, Ursula von der Leyen. Uh, Zelensky will be attending, no doubt, to ask for more support and more money. Leo Vradka, Mark Rutte, Anthony Blinken will be going, Jen Stoltenberg, uh, Tedros from the the WHO and plenty more. And if we just skip to the next slide, you can see that it's the global shapers, as Ben was saying just then, the young global leaders, the think tanks, the uh, NGOs, and you've got the WWF, the World Wildlife Fund down there, and also just tucked at the bottom, David Miliband, but lots of names to look for. And what I saw was um, I noticed that they were going to be holding some panel discussions, which were going to be held in public. 
Now, the titles of these panel discussions slightly concerned me. So the first theme will be from life to lab. Doesn't that fill you with um, a, a warm feeling? And science in action. So please keep an eye out for these public discussions because I'd like certainly to know more about them. So in summary, the agenda for the WEF this, this year is rebuilding trust, as Ben said, but also a long-term strategy for climate, nature and energy, creating growth and jobs for a new era, achieving security and cooperation in a fractured world, artificial intelligence, intelligence as a driving force for the economy and society. So those are the big topics. But um, I did notice a couple of other things. Uh, one is that they're going to be discussing a strategy for disease X. So watch out for that next week. And also they're going to be pr uh, promoting and putting forward a report called Faith in Action. Now I want you to pay particular attention to this because the WEF World Economic Forum engages with 125 religious leaders, faith-based organizations, interfaith groups, multi-faith networks, and experts of religion. And the impact of religion, they say, and spirituality towards public-private cooperation. And we have, uh, I'm afraid, lost Debbie uh, there. So, okay, welcome back. I do apologize about that. Uh, hopefully we're back up and running again and everybody uh, can see us okay. Uh, now, Debbie, uh, just very, very briefly, you were, you were talking about faith in action. I was indeed. Um, I was saying to everyone, keep an eye on this because the WEF are very firmly engaged with a lot of religious leaders, in fact, 125. And they're going to be discussing the impact of religion and spirituality towards public-private cooperation. So keep an eye out for that one next week too. Okay, brilliant. Thank you. Now, uh, if you like what the UK column does, despite the technical issues and people not remembering other people's names and whatnot, uh, please uh, do have a look at community.ukcolumn.org. Uh, there are options to help us out there. We do need your help. If you could possibly support us financially, that would be absolutely fantastic. Uh, join us there, uh, but uh, also uh, feel free to pick something up at the UK column shop. Uh, you could uh, share our material as well, which always helps. Uh, so share it, especially anything you find on ukcolumn.org and ukcolumnextracts.co.uk. Uh, Debbie, very briefly, uh, your new blog. Yes, I've uh, gone for flooding. It's jam-packed this week, but one heading I didn't put on there, actually, I should have, ghost patients. What is a ghost patient and how much are invisible patients costing the NHS every year? Okay, thank you. And uh, the future uh, of food in the hands of uh, the community, this interview uh, that uh, Charles did, uh, is available on the UK Column website now, uh, and also Prevented Education, Controlling the Narratives in Colleges and Universities, an interview that uh, Debbie has done with someone, uh, well, a group of young people, but uh, featuring uh, one young person who has uh, unfortunately found himself excluded from education as a result of the Prevent strategy because he spoke out on gender issues. Um, so uh, we'll just uh, skip over this uh, bit and just remind everybody that Julian Assange is uh, heading to court again on the 21st, 20th, 21st of February. Uh, and uh, the campaign is asking for as many people as possible to gather outside the Royal Courts of Justice from 8.30am on the 20th of February. Uh, this is his final hearing uh, to try to avoid extradition to the United States. Uh, and a final reminder uh, that Andrew Bridgen is, or not a final reminder, another reminder that Andrew Bridgen is calling for MPs to attend his next debate on trends and excess deaths uh, on the 16th of January uh, at 9.30. So if, if you haven't contacted your MP about that 
yet, please do so. Now let's uh, move on to censorship. Um, and uh, just want to remind everybody, actually it was a, Ben was talking about this in the World Economic Forum segment. Uh, this is an important year for elections. And of course, disinformation and misinformation is a narrative that we're being told is interfering with elections uh, globally. So uh, here is EU Observer, just to give an idea, because I think there are uh, half the, about 50% of the population is now living in a country that's going to see a general election of some kind this year. Uh, more than 50 countries, uh, including the UK, the US, Russia, India, Indonesia, El Salvador, South Africa, Mexico, Pakistan. Uh, and the uh, EU Observer here uh, pointing out all the various uh, European countries uh, that are involved in general election, presidential or parliamentary elections uh, this year. So um, yesterday, uh, Gus O'Donnell uh, was speaking on BBC Radio 4, talking about the dangers of interference in elections. Let's have a listen to this. Generative AI can give you fake audio and fake videos. In our 2024 election, the technology is there to do all of these fakes. A lot of people are working on technical solutions to this. There's lots of things around that might, in time, be able to sort out what's fake and what's not. But they're not there yet, and they won't be there in time for our election. I'd like to think that the BBC, has a, as the public service broadcaster, is someone, and BBC Verify is going that way. I, I'd, I'd like to think they will play a crucial role, more than ever. And I think, really importantly, doing this in a completely impartial way, just saying, is it a fake? Not, is it a fake that affects this party or that party, but is it a fake? I think that's got to be absolutely crucial. I think the companies really do need to up their game. All the tech companies need to up their game in terms of trying to make sure that they're not disseminating fakes. And I mean, I think you're seeing that from all of them, apart from one, which is going in the opposite direction, which is Twitter, now X. I think that's a real problem. And I think I will be very, very nervous about believing stuff that's on that. So, of course, that's uh, Gus O'Donnell, former head of the civil service under Tony Blair, otherwise known as God. Uh, and he's talking about the two main uh, features that the World Economic Forum, just by coincidence, is talking about generative AI. That's AI that's used to generate uh, images and videos. Uh, and he's talking about misinformation, disinformation uh, and trust. Um, so let's just look at a piece of generative AI uh, and, uh, well, you can make up your mind about whether this would fool you or not. My fellow Americans, today you may be waiting for the highly anticipated Epstein client list to be released. So while I know you may see what appears to be my name on the list, I'd like to argue that I did not have sexual relations with those children on that island. Would it even count, though? It wasn't in the United States. Also, if you add up their ages, I'm sure it was above 18. Jeff told me since it was outside of the jail. What the hell are you doing? Uh, no, Hillary, I'm not confessing. You idiot. Do I always have to clean up your mess? What are you doing? What? No, wait. Please don't hurt the cameraman. He had nothing to do with this. No, Hillary, that was my friend. He wasn't a witness. Right, so, so that's a little bit lighthearted, uh, and hopefully that'll put a smile on everybody's face. But the point is, 
that uh, that's kind of the standard of generative AI at the moment. Is anybody really going to be f- f- uh, you know, fooled by that? I don't think so. I think the risks of generative AI with respect to this year's elections, at the very least, if not for the next 10 years, are completely overstated uh, and the whole thing is ridiculous. But nonetheless, uh, this is becoming the big censorship issue of the day, election interference and how we prevent fake information appearing on uh, in the uh, social on social media and so on. Uh, so in order to solve this problem, of course, we've seen uh, various censorship legislation coming out right around the world, uh, UK, EU, uh, even in the United States to some degree. Uh, but Ofcom isn't uh, waiting around. They are starting to recruit, or at least they're trying to recruit. So let's just bring up the recruitment page. Uh, the one thing they're looking for is a market intelligence manager for uh, online safety, but there's a whole raft of jobs here. And Ofcom have said that they are looking to recruit from the big tech companies. So they're hoping to poach uh, some suitable people from big tech companies uh, in order to try to uh, uh, increase their their standards within their organization in terms of their ability to deal with so-called fake news on the internet. The unfortunate thing is that uh, uh, Michelle Donnellan was speaking to the select committee uh, before Christmas, uh, basically saying we were struggling to recruit from big tech because of the salaries that are available in big tech and they can't really compete. Uh, but Ofcom, it's quite interesting, are behaving very similarly to the MHRA in the sense that they are attempting to become the global regulator. So this is a press release from yesterday, uh, working globally to protect people on video sharing platforms. They're talking about TikTok and uh, uh, various other video sharing platforms. Uh, and uh, they are working very, very closely with regulators globally. By globally, they mean in the West mainly. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, creators, parents, public and law enforcers are going to be able to help the future, shape the future of UK pornography regulation. This again is Ofcom and the Department uh, of uh, Digital Culture, Media and Sport and so on uh, involved in this uh, uh, public consultation. Um, and uh, so what are they saying? Uh, here is the uh, the public consultation if you want to go to find it. It's uh, entitled Pornography Regulation, Legislation and Enforcement. And they're inviting insights to strengthen evidence base and inform the final recommendations of the independent pornography review. Uh, and the question is, what is this actually about? Well, of course, it's about two things. Uh, one is the media bill, which is going through Parliament at the moment. Uh, and that is uh, going to produce more regulation and more censorship, particularly for the online video sharing platforms. And the other is digital ID, because right at the heart of this is the notion that we've got to protect children from accessing pornography. And therefore, the porn sites are going to be the first sites to, that are going to have to require uh, age verification uh, and digital ID as part of that. But you know, the government's not waiting for this. They're pushing forward with uh, digital ID already. And this is one uh, digital ID provider, Yoti, that the government uses uh, whenever they want uh, uh, people that are accessing uh, various government functions to use. Uh, so you basically upload your your paper ID, whether it be a, a driving license or a, a, any other form of photographic ID to Yoti, and Yoti becomes the source of authority for the UK government and digital ID. This is part and parcel of this whole censorship uh, regime as well. But uh, as with the EU then, we are now bringing in some uh, digital competition, digital markets legislation. So this is overview of the Competition and Markets Authority's provisional approach 
to implement the new digital markets competition regime. And let's just look at what they're talking about here. Uh, they want to prevent what they're calling SMS firms. Uh, these are companies uh, which are considered to be uh, significant in uh, digital realm, for example, Google and Facebook and these types of companies, uh, SMS firms from pre uh, pre preferencing their own products and services or by making them provide competitors with greater access to data and functionality. And here's the other thing that they want to do. They want to require these firms to allow the products and services of other firms to work with their own. Now, of course, at the back of this is encryption and some of the encryption providers in terms of on, uh, chat and so on, like WhatsApp, uh, are basically saying, uh, well, hold on, if we're required to, to interoperate with other uh, chat facilities, um, we're going to have to provide some kind of backdoor to allow these uh, messages to transfer between the various services. And of course, that's part and parcel of what this is all about. So uh, an increasing uh, regulatory burden uh, with respect to censorship, uh, but at the heart of it, generative AI, election interference, trust, all the features that you're seeing at the World Economic Forum. Um, now, Debbie, let's uh, come on to health and the NHS. Yes, well, um, if you are getting a bit concerned about how the NHS is now, um, as we've been talking in the programme about elections, if Labour get in, uh, we've been talking a little bit about their plans, but we have much more information on that now. And we're going to turn our attention to the Tony Blair Global Institute. Now, I picked up this story last week in the Times, and I'm sorry it's a little bit um, small, but to summarise, um, the Blair Institute is, is funded largely by Bahrain and United Arab Emirates governments, and they've continued their paid work even after the Khashoggi murder in 2018. The Blair Institute has also been paid to advise the UAE on COP 28, and the Blair Institute saw its income rise by 50% just last year. So let's go and look at uh, Mr. Blair, uh, Sir Tony Blair, excuse me, himself. He's leading there with ambition and optimi optimism. Uh, nice relaxed pose there in the photograph. Um, so let's go to the document that they've just released, which is moving from cure to prevention. Could save the NHS billions a plan to protect Britain. Now, this has been authored by, you can see there, Ryan Wayne and Brianna Miller. If we take another look at those two in more depth, we can see that Ryan Wayne is a political strategist. He was also the architect of the Future of Britain program. Uh, that's the conference that Ben and I attended, uh, Future of Britain. He's done huge amounts uh, of work uh, with regards to the pandemic. And he was also, in, uh, well, he inspired the first dose to many vaccine campaign. And you can see there, Brianna Miller, has been largely involved with the distribution of COVID vaccines. So when we look at the forward on this document, moving from cure to prevention, we can see it's been written by Sir John Bell, Regis Professor of Medicine, University of Oxford. And basically what he's saying is Britain is an increasingly sick nation and that multiple decades of extending life expectancy are over. So we have to prevent disease. So this isn't focused on late stage disease. We are as a system shooting at the wrong target. So the purpose of all of this is a new strategy that they're going to be launching called Protect Britain. So remember, we were all protecting the NHS. Well, Protect Britain is a nationwide preventative health program. This is going to sit alongside the NHS. The NHS is still going to be there, but then you're going to get this running parallel. And basically, 
basically what it is 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 all about is vaccines for everyone. Um, who remembers the this our future health? We've talked about our future health before, and the Blair Institute are promoting it. They want intensive health surveys. Well, this means, folks, that it's not just writing out a form. This means you have to go to a clinic, give blood, be weighed, be measured, and go for follow up appointments. So this is a big deal. So if we look at a few more slides that's included in this document, and I'll summarise at the end, infrastructure for a preventative health programme. So if we just jump on again from that, I just want to highlight a few things that are in there, and then I'm going to summarise on what the whole document says. So Apollo Pro Health, this is a, a, a group of hospitals in India. Now, these are run by AI, but this is a global operation. So if you just jump to the next slide, you can see a bit more about Apollo Hospitals. And that's uh, that's the building, and you can expect to see a few of those coming to, to your town in the near future. Um, they're a very big organization. Here are the figures. Uh, 73 largest private healthcare pro uh, network of hospitals, 1,100 diagnostic centers. So they're huge. And the gentleman that's running it is a Dr. Prathnap C. Reddy. He is the founder and chairman. So just to summarize then um, on Blair Institute and what he envisages the NHS to be. So this is all about early prevention, not late cure. New diagnostics, screening, the Galeri trial, which is the grail, uh, Bill Gates for cancer, 50 different cancers. They're having a preventative platform. He's going to start a preventative platform, and this is going to be genomic sequencing. So everyone will be genomic sequenced, and everyone will be counseled as to what their risk of a particular disease is, whether it be cancer or diabetes, and you will then have an informed choice as to what you want to do moving forward. The Blair report also says that we are living in an era of omics, genomics. So there's going to be a genomic medicine service, AI drug discovery, lots of wearables, lots of medical devices, a new generation of long acting therapies. And perhaps we might be able to talk about uh, that a little bit ex in extra because it's extremely important. It's going to be vaccines for everything, vaccines for multiple diseases. They're going to reduce the burden of chronic disease, shingles, obesity, diabetes, Alzheimer's, cardiac disease, strokes, Apollo hospitals. This is all coming somewhere near you should Labour get in because this is the policy that Labour will use to transform the NHS. Yeah, so vaccine for obesity, that's just what we need. Maybe access to decent quality food might be a better option, but maybe I'm just wrong about that. Now, Ben, uh, obviously, all the way through this, in terms of uh, World Economic Forum and Tony Blair Institute, the whole works, uh, we have the global goals at the back of it. Uh, but there's an organization here that maybe people aren't terribly familiar with, Goals House. Yes, absolutely. So I touched on this just before Christmas. Um, Goals House, they describe themselves as a diverse community of business and political leaders, activists, NGOs and entrepreneurs focused on delivering the UN Sustainable Development Goals. So they are a key point of coordination for the SDGs. They're overseen by an advisory board, which is led by Matthew Freud, who's the CEO of Freud Communications. He's in the top right-hand side there, buzz cut, a bit like mine with the, the green accent behind him. If you want to find out who all the other uh, directors are, you can go to goldshouse.com and look at the team profiles there. 
Freud is a descendant by blood and craft of Edward Bernays, the godfather of propaganda and PR, who once said, we are dominated by the relatively small number of persons who understand the mental processes and social patterns of the masses. It is they who pull the wires which control the public mind, right? Which people should be bearing in mind given what's going on in Davos next week. Uh, global goals um, house operate all around the world, uh, but one of the, the main uh, uh, events that they run is Davos House. And uh, we're going to watch a short video giving an overview of what happened there in 2023. I'm Hannah Paulby. I'm the Chief Impact Officer at Freud's Group and one of the co-founders of Goals House. What we've discovered is how many interesting conversations, how many interesting connections were made and how many partnerships were built as a consequence of Goals House. In January 2023, Gull's House returned to the snowy peaks of Davos. The pandemic may be over, but it has set us back when already there was no time to spare. Last year saw a string of interlocking events to create what many describe as a polycrisis. As we approach the halfway point and target to achieve the global goals, the need for action is greater now than ever. Our community's guiding principle is a profound understanding of the sheer power of collaboration. Goals House is a catalyst for fostering meaningful partnerships to drive concrete action on the path to achieving every goal. Together, we can accomplish things that would simply be impossible to do alone. So uh, Gold's House is basically there to give a smoothie, metropolitan, pop culture polish to the Sustainable Development Goals. As you heard there in the video from 2023, the pandemic, which the World Economic Forum basically created, has set us back in the attainment of the goals. There's a sense of urgency. We're dealing with a poly crisis. We've got to embrace the power of collaboration and build meaningful partnerships to solve global challenges. And who's going to be involved in these partnerships. And if you were paying close attention, you would have seen a bunch of very familiar faces in attention, in attendance. So who did you spot? I saw Kamal Ahmed, who's the Anthropy host and founder of the News Movement, who's been propagandizing the nation's youth in an extremely dangerous and cynical fashion. I spoke about him last week. We also had this one, Cherie Blair. I've not seen her in a while. We all know her. And we've just spoken about her husband, also, Carmine DeCibio, global CEO and chairman of EY. EY is a strategic partner of the World Economic Forum, the big global consulting firm. Uh, Carmine DeCibio is also a member of Linda Rothschild's Council on Inclusive Capitalism. And EY were well represented at the event last year. We also saw this lady, Judy Teagland, who leads EY in Europe, Middle East, India, and Africa. So she has 115,000 people reporting into her across all service lines and all industries. She was very active at COP. And I'm going to talk more about that over the coming weeks. Also, Steve Varley, former global head of sustainability at EY and UK chairman and managing partner of the business. He's actually just left. He's gone on to do some other things. So I'm very interested to see what he's going to do next. Also, Bill Gates, everyone's favorite philanthropath. He was there at last week's event. And that just makes me want to share my favorite tweet of all time from Penny Mordaunt. 
where she was hanging out with Bill Gates and a bunch of other people talking about the delivery of global goals. This is from 2018. Uh, and obviously, we kicked off with Penny Mordaunt talking about re-establishing trust. And obviously, we can trust her because she's hanging around with Bill Gates. Anyway, we looked at 2023, and you can go to the Gold's House website, and you you can look at every event that they've done. Yeah, not just Davos. They're in Cannes. They're in Singapore. They're in New York. They're in London. Um, but if we go back to the 2020 video, um, uh, we can see – um, some very interesting people and uh, a bunch of inf- uh, very interesting um, images from inside the uh, building that they're using at the Davos Golf, Golf Club. Um, so that was Jane Goodall. Uh, she was speaking at the Guest of Honor, uh, as Guest of Honor in 2020. And let's just have a quick listen back to her thoughts on how to solve the poly crisis from that same year. And then finally, we cannot, we cannot hide away from human population growth. Because, you know, it underlies so many of the other problems. All these things we talk about wouldn't be a problem if there, were, if there was the size of population that there was 500 years ago. So they want to reduce the global population by about 90%. Yeah. So over 500 years ago, the global population was 500 million people. So Jane Goodall, uh, who was the, clearly the keynote speaker, a guest of honour at Gold's House in Davos in 2020, wants to reduce the population by 90%. Seems like a lovely lady. Here she is talking to Brian. He's not the king. He's a very naughty boy. Uh, here's Brian with uh, the new generation version of Jane Goodall, that is uh, Greta Thunberg, obviously, um, uh, the same year uh, in 2020 at Davos. Uh, We also have the lesser spotted Miller band, David. Not seen him in a little while, although I did hear him mentioned earlier, so he's clearly going to be back in Davos this year. And then also James Harding, uh, editor-in-chief of Tortoise Media, who I've been talking about a lot. They partner with My Life, My Say, the charity that I've spoken about previously, and the news movement that Kamal Ahmed runs that we just spoke about a moment ago. Uh, James Harding is a collaborator with Lord Jacob Rothschild. He's been <coughs> at Gold's House every year, as far as I can tell, and he uh, seems to be leading many of the discussions around topics like AI and all the other uh, topics of note at, at, at Davos. Lots of familiar faces. Um, but what you might have spotted in the background of, of that previous slide is that there is something hanging on the wall in the dining area of the Gold's house in Davos. And we're going to take a closer look at it because it's a tapestry, very creative. Um, and we're going to just zoom in and have a little look on it because this is hanging in the main area where all these people have been hanging out. And as you can see on the left, that appears to be a woman giving birth to a demon and producing a river of blood. And in the middle here, you can see is that it looks a bit like Queen Elizabeth, a young Queen Elizabeth, but it's a woman in a headscarf. That's the kind of center point of the tapestry. And above her head, it looks like the tree of knowledge. And is that not a star of David? above her to the, to the right slightly. And then finally, is that Satan drinking from the river of blood coming from the woman giving birth to a demon? Isn't that rather strange, don't you think? Um, for that to be in, in the room where they're all eating and where Jane Goodall and, 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 uh, and the king and uh, all of these dignitaries are hanging out. But don't worry. We can trust these people. They definitely have our best interests at heart. 
Absolutely. They don't have a trust issue at all. Uh, Debbie, let's get some focus. Yeah, let's uh, stick. Well, clearly, in my opinion, the sustainable goals are clearly unsustainable because um, we've got this organization, Focus 2030. Uh, they're a non profit organization. They were founded in 2017. They support the international development actors. Their mission is to boost impact, visibility, and influence of the international development community through providing support in three areas communication, mobilization, and advocacy. And as you can see, it's all to do with sustainable goals. So who runs this organization? Well, uh, it's a lady called, uh, I apologize for the pronunciation, Fanny Forgio. We'll just focus on her for a minute. She was the co-founder and president. She's also a gender equality specialist, and she's a big data expert. So when you go and look further on the website, you can see that they've got a tick down clock, a timing. Now, when I took this screenshot, there was just over seven years to achieve all of these sustainable goals by 2030. If you go onto the website now and it's uh, focus2030.org, you'll see that it's six years and something. It was just when I took the screenshot. So time is running out. But there's a very useful calendar on the website. And if any of you want to know what's going on this year around the world with regards to sustainable goals, I'd advise you go to the website and print this out if you want to know where everybody is. The top half is purely France. And of course, we're in the 2024 Paris Olympics, a lot of French events going on there. And then the international ones at the bottom, for example, January, we've got WEF. Uh, February, we've got the Munich Security Conference. March, we have the International Tax, uh, Tax Conference. In April, we've got World Health Day. And it goes on and on. So it's a very useful calendar to have. But who funds them? Who are partnered with them? And when you go and look at that, you can see the old familiar names like Bill and Melinda Gates, Birmingham University, you've got University College London, uh, plenty of other names there. And if you skip to the final slide, you'll see some more names that will be familiar, Terra Nova, for example, and Oxfam. So keep an eye on Focus 2030. Okay, thank you, Debbie. Thank you very much for that. Now, uh, I want to make a correction to something that I said on Wednesday. We were talking about the Horizon uh, IT scandal uh, and I was making the point, or I was saying, that uh, Keir Starmer unfortunately couldn't be held responsible as uh, for the prosecutions because while he was director of public prosecutions at the time, uh, that he was not responsible for these prosecutions because these were being brought by the post office. Now, that was mostly true, uh, but in fact, I was slightly incorrect about that. So let's correct that now if we put that back on screen. Uh, and we'll just uh, show this. So the post office themselves prosecuted 700 or so sub-postmasters and sub-postmistresses uh, between 1999 and 2015. Uh, another 238 cases were brought by other uh, organizations. And so the CPS was involved in 11 cases uh, in which it, it had pro prosecuted sub-postmasters for fraud, theft, and false accounting involving the Horizon IT system. And that resulted in three convictions while Starmer was uh, DPP, so that's tw uh, one conviction was 21 months imprisonment for theft, uh, another was eight months suspended jail term, and another one was an, and 180 hours of community service, and then a third one was a curfew and ordered to do unpaid work. So uh, although he was by no means, and the CPS was by no means responsible for the vast majority of the cases, 
He was uh, DPP at the time. He was in charge of the uh, CPS at the time when they brought 11 of these cases and apparently did nothing uh, to sort the thing out. So the question is, will he be handing back his gong uh, and removing the sir from his name? I suspect not. We should uh, remember, of course, that Sir Ed Davey uh, was uh, the postal uh, secretary or postal minister at the time uh, and no sign of him him handing back his uh, knighthood either. So I just wanted to to make that uh, correction. And then finally on this issue, uh, on Tuesday next week, I believe, Tuesday the 16th of January, uh, there'll be an oral evidence session with the Business and Trade Committee and representatives from Fujitsu, who's the company that wrote this software in the first place, will be there apparently, although on the committee's website, it still says uh, oral evidence uh, session to be confirmed. Um, So hopefully that uh, will see Fujitsu appearing in front of the select committee and we'll see what what happens there. Now, uh, let's come back to you, Ben. Um, And uh, well, beginning with Solitaire. Yes, absolutely. I'd like to introduce you to Solitaire Townsend. So modern marketing is at odds with a sustainable future because currently our future is f***ed. All the evidence that we have from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change to all of the reviews of the Sustainable Development Goals we have is that everything is heading in the wrong direction. And it's heading in the wrong direction fast. In fact, the IPCC report that came out early in the year shows that half of humanity, 50% of people on Earth, are currently in danger from climate change. So when we're in that situation, every single sector Every institution, every business and every individual has to admit that we are not compatible with a sustainable future yet. And it's the yet that is the most exciting part because we can be, but first of all, we're going to have to admit we've got a problem. So, hi, Solitaire. Um, and sorry about the bad language, everybody, but uh, it, it, uh, hopefully you will allow it um, because of uh, the, the nature of, of, of the topic. I think it's important to hear what Solitaire had to say. She's come to some prominence over the past um, few months, um, uh, particularly on, on LinkedIn. And she appears to be at the vanguard of a transformation of the global marketing communications industry. You just heard there, she talked about the idea that marketing and advertising are at odds with the sustainability movement. And there seems to be a concerted effort to turn these huge communications groups into activist operations. And her organization that she started back in 2001 is called Futera. Uh, They are a sustainability consulting firm. They're here to make the Anthropocene awesome. The Anthropocene is the geological era defined by man's impact on the natural world. Um, As I said, they're a change agency. Um, So they partner with clients to deliver breakthrough sustainability strategies and powerful creative campaigns. They also make things. Uh, So if we just flick on one, we can see that they create innovative products that change the world for the better and help you you vision your new product development for good. And actually, the example they've got in there is insect-based dog food, right? So this is the thin end of the wedge, if you will. Uh, They run academies, so the training sessions to raise sustainability capacity and confidence in your entire organization. So this is a big propaganda operation that she's running. 
They're a B Corp. So they're one of the founding B Corps in the UK, and they, which has been set up to deliver the sustainable development goals and bring about climate justice. And she loves to talk about social justice, climate justice. And also, fascinatingly, she was seed funded by Nesta in 2001. Now, Nesta, we've talked about lots and lots and lots of times on the column. It's the UK Social Innovation Agency who own the Behavioural Insights team, the nudge unit. They own it. And they were founded by Tony Blair in 1998. And that probably goes some way to explaining the manipulative linguistic tricks that Solitaire has been using to stimulate climate anxiety. I talked about uh, this Forbes article uh, um, back when, we, uh, when COP was running in November. Um, there is a big push to make people anxious about the climate, essentially. Um, and obviously, the secret is that climate action will deliver that happiness boost people are spending so much time looking for. So when someone searches for climate anxiety on Google, they should be presented, according to Solitaire, with the health benefits of a sustainable diet, how renewables can lift people out of poverty, solar will make us safer somehow, and that 15-minute cities will give you more time in your day, right? So we'll stimulate climate anxiety will create climate anxiety and here's how you can address it by acting by going along with our agenda right um this is an absolute propaganda operation um she also describes herself as a prophet remarkably uh, particularly given uh, what we just saw at goal's house so she has a prophecy for 2024 these are her sustainability prophecies um they're not just about uh, where, where are they? So from managerial to entrepreneurial um, sustainability, so not just about major corporations and governance, it's about small business, it's about getting um, um, uh, entrepreneurs engaged in this program. They want to move from net zero ambition to actually doing something about it. Uh, they want to not just communicate, but embed sustainability into operations really importantly. I mentioned a minute ago that this is a transformation of the marketing communications industry, right? They, what they represent is a new type of consulting firm that is not just about communications. It's also about transformation of, of your operations. They want to move from social impact to social justice, right? Again, this is what the Khmer Rouge were talking about when they took over in Cambodia and killed a third of the population. I spoke about that last week. This is the messaging. It's the same ideological background that, um, uh, that, that, that Solitaire is promoting here. And they want it to become not just a business issue, but a personal issue. So essentially, everyone needs to become an activist, especially anxious young women who this is really being targeted at. And I'll keep you up to date on solitaire and this entire narrative as we go through the year. Okay, thank you, Ben. Thank you. And Debbie, uh, let's end uh, because uh, with health again and uh, disability this time. Yes, I want to uh, bring people's attention back to the interview that we did with Ed Dowd just recently um, and Cheryl Granger. Um, and Ed was talking about his data on excess deaths. Now, a lot of this was taken from DWP and from personal independence payments and disability allowance. That's how he got his data. So um, please go and have a look at that. But the Institute for Fiscal Studies has brought out a new report and it's called, alarmingly, the number of new disability benefits claimants has doubled 
in a year. This goes from July 2021 to July 2022. Um, now, the Institute for Fiscal Studies have brought out this report in collaboration with the Economic Social Research Council. Um, this is the report that they've brought out now. And then if we look at the key findings, um, it's quite concerning, actually, because all ages um, have doubled in claims, but the, the teenagers have tripled in claims for personal independence payment. Uh, the claims for most major conditions have also increased and a third of new claims are for mental and behavioural conditions and again, alarmingly, 70% of these are under 25. There's also a backlog of applications, 250,000 people waiting, 40,000 people have been awarded PIP. This graph here clearly shows um, how what the applications, the decision and the awards that are being made. And you can see there from 2016, there were 35,000 claims. In 2022, 65,000 claims. In 2016, 12,000 awards. In 2022, 30,000 awards. There's a couple more graphs. So if we go to the next one, we can see how many people who are waiting for an initial decision um, are waiting for a very long time. There's currently a backlog of over 220,000. And although this has dropped a little bit, it's still incredibly high. Uh, the next graph will show you the um, the new disability benefit claimants has also doubled. There you can see it doubled, but also the different types of ill health that's increased. So you can see mental and behavioral at the top, musculoskeletal, and that's also to do with obesity. Um, that's why they're talking about musculoskeletal, heart, blood, respiratory, and visual and hearing. And if you skip to the next slide, again, it just confirms that the new claimants um, are worryingly a lot of teenagers, number of teenagers tripled in a year. So this is something we need to be keeping an eye on. But why is this happening? This is the big question. But the report doesn't seem to be able to uh, work it out. They say that there's worsening health across the population. People are complaining about all sorts of conditions. They're being complaining that their life is being limited a lot. And this is consistent with worsening health across the population, which is leading to the PIP application increases. So when, they, when you go and look at the conclusions of this report, actually, they're asking the one question that we probably know the answer to, which is why? Why is there been a rapid increase of people um, making PIP claims? Why is there a deterioration of health? No one seems to know. Is it the pandemic or is it the N NHS? But whatever it is, and I've got a few suggestions, including lockdown and vaccine injuries, clearly we could potentially see DWP and the claimants and the benefits potentially bankrupt the country because they are rising at such a rapid rate. Okay, thank you, Debbie. We have to end there. I'm going to say thank you very much uh, to Debbie and Ben for joining us today. Thank you for watching. Uh, sorry for the technical glitch in the middle there. Um, and uh, But we will be back in a couple of minutes if you're a UK column member with some extra. Otherwise, uh, 1 p.m. as usual on Monday. I hope everyone has a great weekend. We'll see you then. Bye-bye.